Hey everyone, it's the Freelancer Show. And today we have a special guest. We have Jay Klaus. Is that how you pronounce your name? That's right, nailed it. Okay. Fantastic. And we have panelists today. We have Brad Larch. Hey everybody, how's it going? And we have Joel Schalbert. Hey everyone, this is Joel. And I'm Petra. So, Jay, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? What makes you special and all of that? Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at iFreaksShow.com. What makes me special? What an existential question. (laughs) Goodness. Well, so freelancing is fairly new to me in the context of my whole career. Uh, Really started in the startup world because... When I went to college, I discovered entrepreneurship and just had no idea that that was even an option. You know, like I grew up to a family where I thought the model was you go to college, you get a degree, you get a job, you work that job for 35 years, and then you, you know, collect retirement. And so it was really, really important, I thought, to find the job that you wanted because you're going to be doing that forever. (laughs) (laughs) And so in college, when I found entrepreneurship and I found people my age who were making their own path and creating things and selling things, it just blew my mind. So naturally, I thought then that the only path for me was startups and started going down that path. Right out of college, I, I joined on with a founder in Cincinnati, Ohio, who was building a digital ticket marketplace called Tixers. And he was looking for essentially a co-founder. He had just gotten into an accelerator, but the product didn't exist yet. He knew he needed somebody to join him. So I joined on with him and we launched that product. We we ran it for a couple of years. We were doing close to a million dollars in sales per year on that product. We're selling tickets. So, you know, the margins on those things are like zero to 10%, like real slim margins on a million dollars in revenue. But we had a little bit of a different differentiator in terms of how the marketplace worked. And that was attractive enough to a, another company to buy us. And so we, we were acquired in 2015. We worked for that company for about a year. It was a miserable experience, in my opinion. <laughs> but that was the way it went. And feeling kind of burned out from that and not knowing, you know, what's the next startup that I want to start? I took a job at another startup company here in Columbus, Ohio called Crosschecks, or at least at the time it was called Crosschecks. It's in the healthcare space. It had raised something like $50 million in venture capital at that point. I joined on as a product manager. And a year into that, I realized I really wanted to go back out onto my own and still not knowing what startup I wanted to do. uh, Freelancing was kind of the natural option I fell into because when you don't have a job and you're not starting a startup company, uh, you got to make money somehow. And that was my discovery of freelancing. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, that you chose freelancing when previously your experience had been in startups. I mean, did you find it to be very different or were there many similarities? Well, I I always just kind of thought it was going to be a stopgap measure until I figured out what it was that I wanted to build. And what I realized was, so the first thing I started doing was facilitating mastermind groups through a company that I call Unreal Collective. We have a 12-week online accelerator program that really looks a lot like a mastermind program where I'll bring in 
15 to 20 people at a time, break them into groups of five. And those groups of five will meet every week for an hour to help each other build their businesses. And I thought that I'd be working with a lot of startup founders through that. And I did initially because that was kind of my network. But over a period of several years, what I found was the people that really were pulled to that program were creative professionals who were really good at doing fantastic work for their clients, but just didn't have as much experience running a business as I had. And it was really fascinating to me because these are in, insanely talented people who have a very you know, scarce and valuable skill set. And with my background in startups and products, I just looked at that as a product. And I said, you guys have a marketing problem. Like you don't have a product problem. The product is great. What you need is better marketing to like connect that with your customers and really build a business out of it. And that was just natural to me given the experiences that I had. And what I found was that was fairly novel to a lot of the client-based business owners that I was meeting. And that's what drew them to the program. And so for me, you know, same, same with me. I was constantly you know, packaging my own set of skills as some sort of solution for people and freelancing, doing uh, all kinds of weird stuff. You know, like I haven't had a super straightforward, you know, I do exactly this service for people. I always kind of focused on what is the solution this person needs and kind of combined my set of skills to help them. Right now, I'm helping somebody launch a community platform because I have a lot of experience in community building now. In the past, I've done copywriting. I've done WordPress development. I've done everything in between where it's, you know, connecting the WordPress site to MailChimp and building automations based on how people come into the, web, the website. So I've really freelanced in a lot of different capacities. But the through line has always been, I understand that the person I'm talking to has a problem and I can package my skill set as a solution. And so it makes it really easy to sell when you approach things like that. So that yes. initial group of people that you found, were they, did they end up being people like in that kind of saw things similar to the way you saw things? I mean, was there sort of that kind of connection or was it more literally that they were interested in what you knew that they didn't know? It was, it was kind of like, I just kind of started to build a name around, I could help people actually realize the lifestyle that they wanted when they started freelancing in the first place. Because, you know, usually when people start freelancing, it's because they're burned out at an agency job, maybe, you know, realizing that they are more valuable than they're getting credit for. They want more control and flexibility over their time. So they say, I know I can do this work. I've done it for the agency I work for. I've done it for other clients. I just want to do it on my own. And soon, if you haven't had experience doing that, you realize there's a lot that goes into being a business owner outside of just doing really great client work. You know, it's the, it's a classic e-myth idea of, you know, if you're a really great baker, opening a bakery is a different skill set. And so when I started to kind of show results for clients who just weren't living a comfortable lifestyle, or at least not the lifestyle that they thought they, they would and should, it started to pull to other people to say, I, you know, I want that too. And all these people, they do see the world similarly to me. Like there's a real ethos in the community of people who are really ambitious, but also like generous and kind and doing this work because they can't help but be doing this work. You know, like graphic designers who just love that more than anything else, they want to be doing that. Or engineers who love building apps on Flutter, like they want to be doing that. They want to work with other clients who can who can use Flutter for their apps. I'm probably butchering the way to explain Flutter, but that's because I'm not an engineer. But yeah, all these people, you know, they they wanted to just be independent. And being an independent business owner means embracing being a business owner and everything that comes with it from 
finances, accounting, client communication, budgeting, all of that. That's great. I think that whole thing you're referring to, that whole e-myth part of it, where you've got a person, they've got this great technical skill, and now they want to jump in and they find out, okay, well, I can do that. But if I don't learn any of the other parts of the business, my it's going to be slim pickings in terms yeah. of I may, I may have to take whatever client comes along. I may not get to pick clients. I may be behind the eight ball on billing all the time because I don't understand how to set up a system for billing or how to be current with that. All those other e-myth boxes, I think that really, I think that's, I think that's a thing that a lot of people kind of get stuck on when they're getting started. So let's kind of tie this in with, it sounds like this is part of what you're doing now. Is this kind of the direction of where you took things to like help people that are already freelancing figure these other things out? Or what is, what is kind of your, who are you helping now? Yeah. So a couple of things happened along the way. So I'm, I'm doing these accelerator groups and I've worked with 110 or 115 people to this point, mm-hmm. um, gone through like 24 different cohorts of people. Along the way, I built a relationship with LinkedIn Learning, their course platform. And it started actually in the product space because of my background in product. So I was making courses for LinkedIn Learning related to product. As I started working with these client-based business owners, that opened up the door for me to create courses for LinkedIn around freelancing. And then I just looked at you know the courses that I created for LinkedIn. I looked at the work I was doing with my clients. And I said, a lot of this stuff that I'm teaching, I'm teaching the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I packaged that up into a set of courses that I could distribute on my own. Uh, I recently discovered that dot school domains were a thing. So I picked up freelancing.school, put those courses up for sale there. And since that time, I'm actually really, really excited about that website as an overall platform. Like I, I bought that domain just thinking it'd be something easy to direct people to to buy the courses. But now I'm still working with people through Unreal. I'm still freelancing myself. But I've really wanted to get into deeper content creation, mostly like writing for SEO, things like that, building community. And now that I have the courses on freelancing school, it's given me the opportunity to really invest time into creating lots of free, helpful resources for this group of people. So like literally this afternoon, I started circulating this community platform that I created for freelancers. And that's a community to add freelancing that's cool. That's totally free. It's totally open for anybody to come in there, get support, get connection, learn from other freelancers. I'm doubling down on the articles I'm creating. I have a podcast that I publish weekly for creatives generally. But having all that now under the umbrella of freelancing school, I'm really excited just to build out that whole platform and really impact more people than the five people at a time that come into the accelerator program. You know, that's, this is an interesting thing. You're talking about starting out with the cohorts. And I hadn't really seen this before as an approach to online learning. I was more only familiar with the method of making a course and people sign up for it. But there's this really wonderful bass player out in Australia. And he's got these free videos learning some of the basics of bass, which I started playing this year. And he just seems so happy doing this, just watching him. He's like, this is what you do. And his name is Luke and he's out there and he's got this, these base courses. And I asked him, I found a course he had that looked really interesting. And it's like, can I sign up for that? And he goes, no, I'm not uh, teaching that one right now. And I thought, well, all the, ma- all the material is online. It doesn't look like something where you'd need somebody there. But he had this kind of cohort approach for people mm-hmm. to go through at once. So for people who aren't familiar with that, what uh, what is it like being in a cohort? Just an, 
just versus an ordinary class, especially from the point of view of the author of it, like from your side of the fence? What makes you want to do it as a cohort and not a regular class? And what do you see as kind of some of the pros and cons for both sides of the fence? Totally. And there's, this is actually a spectrum. There are a lot of different ways to offer this. And I'll actually run through each of them if you're, if you're interested. On one end of the spectrum, you have the totally at your own pace course that we're all used to. You know, you get access to a dashboard, you go through the videos, you self-guide, all that. On the far other end of the spectrum is basically what I've been doing with Unreal Collective for several years, which is very manual, uh, very one-to-one directly with these people meeting them where they are and basically coaching them one-to-one, but in a group setting. And the way to make that effective is by pulling in a group of people who are all doing similar things and at a similar stage. And then between those two poles of the spectrum, you have different things that I think are also highly, highly effective. So you could take a cohort-based model with your actual course curriculum where you say, okay, I open this course up for a period of a few weeks. This is when everybody starts. And that way you can have, you know, quote unquote, recitations with these students to support them live in a group setting as they're going through the content. It's kind of like the flipped classroom model. And there are different variations on that that I think you can probably imagine. That's really effective because on the end of the spectrum where it's just self-guided learning, what you find is people just don't finish online courses. They just don't. And it's because they either forget about it, they lose interest, or it gets hard it's, it's rare for somebody to go all the way through without a lot of nudging over email or some way to really check in and hold people accountable. On the other end of the spectrum, when people are meeting with you face-to-face live for an hour every week, you can't get around it. You know, we have an action item spreadsheet in Unreal Collective where before the end of the call every week, I say, hey, before next week, what are you going to get done? And they self-declare action items. The first uh, part of the next call, I say, how'd that go? And it's either a yes or no. It updates, you know, a percentage of how are you doing through this whole program. People, a lot of people need and want accountability. And doing this cohort-based model really helps align everybody's interests because ultimately, as a course creator, I want people to finish it. I want people to have a good experience and I want people to experience a transformation that I think the courses are capable of, but I can't do it for you. So anything that I can do to facilitate the completion and you know, the investment of effort into what the course teaches, that person is going to have a better experience. They're going to be happy with their investment. They're going to speak well of it to other people. They're going to refer other people to it. So really anything you can do to get people to complete the course is positive for everybody involved. And if you do a cohort-based approach, that's one of the ways to do that. What format would you suggest to someone who was planning to use a course for lead generation rather than as their main product for sale. Do you think that that one side or the other is more suitable in that case? What do you mean by late generation? Oh, lead generation, sorry. Oh, 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 okay. What what model would you use for someone that's using courses for lead generation and not for selling the product itself? Anything, I mean, if it's going to be lead generation, you're playing kind of a top of the funnel approach where you're trying to get a lot of people up top. So I would do something that's pretty self-paced. You know, and I wouldn't even do necessarily a course as lead generation unless it's kind of a dripped out email course. But the thing is with with lead generation generally, you want people to very quickly realize the promise of whatever it is that they opted in for anyway. So the longer you make that experience, the least likely they are to think well on that experience generally. Like the faster you can say, hey, do you want this? Give me your email. And they say, here's my email. And you say, here it is. Here's that result. 
the faster you can tighten that whole feedback loop, the better the experience is for the person. So courses aren't actually very well suited, in my opinion, for lead generation. I was thinking in terms of for a freelancer, there's a certain period of time where they're uh, sharing helpful information if they're doing content marketing, for example, in order to get someone closer to them to, to trust them rather than have it be a hard sell type of situation when you finally get that person on a call. And if someone's been through courses that you've done, they already know how you can help them and what your skills are. So I've been seeing membership sites and courses and different styles of learning as a helpful nurturing system prior to someone becoming a client. And it also helps to filter out people that wouldn't be suitable clients in order to save your time so that you're not jumping on phone calls with every person who is interested in what you have to offer without them knowing anything about you. Mm. So I'm thinking in terms of a way to deliver the key information that they need before becoming your client. But at the same time, if you're a freelancer, you need to be very protective of your time. And if you're not in the business of selling courses, then how can you make sure that what you're delivering is going to be effective while at the same time not now becoming a product-based business? You're still a service-based business. I mean, if I'm a freelancer, if you're a freelancer and you want to get more clients, creating content is one of the longest paths to doing that. Like in any form, creating content is just going to be difficult. That being said, I think one of the actual shortest paths and one of the most valuable paths is building relationships with people. I just don't think it needs to be through content. I think you can do that much more quickly and much more effectively in some old school style ways. Does it scale as much? No. But if you're worried about getting clients, you have a finite amount of time anyway. If you're staffing up and you're trying to grow and, and move into kind of an agency model where you're employing more people, content starts to make more sense because as you scale, you know, how many people are looking at your stuff, you can still support that. If you're a single independent freelancer, I just don't think creating content is the best way to create new clients. It can be really effective. It's just such a time investment. And that time is coming away from something else. And if it's not coming away from just even the work you're doing for clients, it's certainly coming away from the relationships you could be building with people who could become clients. So to me, I just, I wouldn't recommend that path as I sit here, you know, doing that. But that's, you know, I'm not trying to fill up all of my time with client work. I actually want to get to a point where creating content is my full-time job. So right now, creating content is a big part of that. But for, for most freelancers, I think the most direct path is actually building relationships. And the most direct path is probably going through like a freelance job marketplace. But I think there are some real trade-offs to doing that too. I think that's interesting take because a, a lot of my clients are actually coaching. Like I do coaching so that they can kind of become more self-sufficient with uh, the platform that I, I work on. So they're interested initially in what can I do myself, right? And it's, it's kind of like this, this idea of I want to be able to do these things, but I'm not really sure what's involved with that. And one of the challenges I found is the platform I use is fair, it can get very technical. And people don't understand that because they see all the flashy promo videos and they're like, okay, it looks fun, right? It looks easy to use. And all, well, there are a lot of assumptions and technical stuff going on. So when they jump in, 
um, I found that offering how-to content or you know free content along those lines was very effective at getting people to contact me about engagements, but they were shocked at what could be involved or some of the prices of implementation and things like that. So I, I feel Petra's point of, you know, how do you use this as a filtering mechanism? But it was, it was, that was a challenge that I faced setting up my course because people wanted to bite off more than they could chew a lot of times. And they saw that as a cost savings way to do it was to start a course. And so then we'd have to have like, okay, here's what you can get for X amount of dollars and these different conversations around that. But as I look at this, I just, I was really got just caught up in my, my head when you were talking about the, the spectrum of courses, because one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, the more hands are you on, the more feedback you get from people as well, right? Oh, totally. So as I was building out content, I've just now gotten to a point, I'm kind of the rookie on the show, Jay. So I haven't been doing this for a super long time, but over the past year I've gotten a lot better in my freelancing game and, and but I still moonlight and I do content and all that kind of stuff. All that to say that as I'm building out content, I've finally gotten to the point where my clients are giving me feedback on what's valuable to them. And I have people that have been paying me for a while giving me a lot more feedback. So as I was creating content, I realized I had several like massive flaws in how I was phrasing it because I was looking at it from a technical perspective instead of a client perspective. And so getting that feedback in a more intensive coaching situation directly, uh, you know, allowed me totally. to look into the brains of those clients and say, okay, well, here's how I could package my content to be way more effective for them. And also, you know, Petra, to your point, to phrase it so that, that I can more clearly set those expectations with them, because it can be very difficult. That was my takeaway. It's just so difficult sometimes to try to help people solve a problem on their own, but then you know, offer those coaching services or those content services, like where those fuzzy lines are, it's always hard to communicate that. And a lot of people, when they get into wanting to create courses, I think they go about it totally backwards because exactly to your point, if you think you know exactly how to explain something and how to teach something and you go into a dark room and work on it and build it and film it and edit it and then put it up on a sales page four months later, you're going to have so many mistakes that could have been avoided if you kind of built this in real time through coaching initially. It's, it's actually really hard to sell digital products, especially if you don't have a huge audience because having a really big audience who already knows, likes, and trusts you solves for a lot of problems because if your messaging isn't great, they already know you, they already trust you, they're going to bite anyway. But if you're starting off, you really have to have your language tight you have to understand, you know, how the entire experience works through actually purchasing the course. And as consumers, we expect that experience to be really seamless and really intuitive and really trustworthy and beautiful. So a lot of people will go and just develop these courses, put them up for sale, and nobody buys because they, they didn't know the right messaging to resonate with the person. Even if people do buy it and they don't go all the way through it because, again, people don't finish courses a lot of the time they don't get the feedback of like, well, is this even good? Like, was this thing I made good? Even if people are buying it, do you, are you enjoying it? So even in my courses, all throughout them, I have little areas where it's like a type form embedded into the course to say, how was this? <laughs> to give me feedback in real time, even if they don't make it all the way through. So for a lot of people who want to go towards digital products and courses, I really recommend starting with coaching because it's, it's actually easier in my experience to sell one-to-one -one or group coaching, even if it is at a higher price point, 
because people will value that direct attention from you. And also typically for you to sell a one-to-one service like that, there's going to be a direct conversation you have with that person. And in that conversation, they're going to ask you the questions they have and you can answer them and assure them, reassure them that this is going to work for them. In a digital context, you can't really do that. When they're going through and they have a question of like, well, what about this? Will this work for me? They can't ask you. They could. They could hit the chat button and ask, but they probably won't. They'll probably leave and not come back. And you won't even know that you were right on the doorstep to helping somebody through your course if you could have just explained something that you missed in your messaging. You have holes all throughout your digital product funnel that you're not aware of. It's really hard to get the feedback loops to recognize where are people falling out. Yeah, there was a massive shift in my course when I got the feedback finally. People were like, you know what? There's really two camps. There's people setting up the course or setting up the the platform for themselves, the CRM for themselves to automate things. And there's another that want to set it up for a team for collaboration. And once that gym hit me, I have this like crazy new way to structure my course and to feed people into funnels, get way more useful analytics and all these other ways to think about it. But that didn't strike me at all until I had clients for six months, you know, that were regularly giving me feedback and saying, why are you doing it this way? So I, it was it just fantastic. It just really resonates that that's a, I'm kind of glad the conversation's taking this turn because it's a huge, I mean, online courses, especially now, how you use them can, can really affect your business model, you know, and unless you're intentional about that, then, you know, and if you're new to it, you don't know what you don't know, right? So I see myself almost having two businesses because I've got my freelancing business, which is the service side. And that's where pretty much all of my revenue comes from. And in the last 12 months, I've hit my goals in terms of revenue. I've exceeded them in terms of revenue from the service side. And then when I look at the content and product side, I haven't really hit any of my goals on that side. Even though I produce a lot of content, it's not easy to actually create revenue from that. But in my mind, having the two businesses is supporting me because I would like to ultimately be able to separate myself from my day-to-day business by having things for sale that can be purchased by someone, even if I'm not doing the delivery of it. And I do have that happening to some degree with having an assistant that helps me with the actual implementation. But that doesn't really take away that day-to-day work at all because now I've got a supervisory role. And in many ways, the supervisory role is more tiresome <laughs> than actually doing the work myself. The, the benefit of it though is that I'm able to focus on process rather than just being in the grind of it all the time and me having the pressure of the deadlines are all on me. Now I've got, I'm able to distribute that a little bit, but I'm always investing my time in content and courses are that next step for me because I want to have a more automated way of doing that filtering process. I found that when I first started, and I know this was actually Jay, a way that you wanted to take the conversation in terms of, well, how do you acquire clients? But when I first started, I joined a networking group and it was like a BNI group. And what we did was we kind of traded referrals to each other. But what I found was that I wasn't getting my ideal client. I was getting whatever kind of clients were the ideal clients for those people. And that just happened to be in their network. But I wanted the ideal clients for me. And the way that I saw getting the ideal clients for me were the people that gelled with what I had to say and what I believed in. 
So for me, having a content strategy and passing people through that way was going to bring me better clients. And it has been true that um, the people that have liked what I put out there are the types of people who have come through and become my clients. And I think that has been relevant for my service business going so well in the last 12 months. But certainly when it comes to actually selling anything digital, it's been a real flop. And I've tried all sorts of different content writing strategies. And to be honest, I think the topic that I wrote about being Google Analytics wasn't a sexy topic at all. So probably if I do one on Google Ads, it might do better. But yeah, that's been a real sticking point for me actually selling something <laughs> in the digital space is hard. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. I totally hear where you're coming from. And, you know, I think probably the, the secret that most freelancers won't admit is that I don't know a single freelancer who wants to freelance forever. Like they either want to build up into an agency or they want to build towards making a living from their own creative work. And freelancing is kind of the economic engine to fund that pursuit. But very, I, I just, I can't think of a single person who I talk to that's like, I want to freelance just me forever because it's tough. Like it's a lot of time into other people's projects. It's time doing all the aspects of the, biz the business that we are talking about. But I think it can be a really great financial engine to fund the creation of whatever more scalable content or product-based business that you want. Like it's, it's one of the best ways to bootstrap anything. Now, your comment about, you know, Google Analytics not necessarily being the sexiest topic. Honestly, some of the most successful courses that I see are like technical, non-sexy things that don't invite a lot of people to dive in and talk about it and also requires a level of depth of understanding to do that. And when people hit a wall, they're going to say, well, how do I get past this technical wall I've hit? And the answer is usually like an unsexy technical... <laughs> course or a training on how to do that. So I wouldn't let that discourage you at all. You know, Jay, when you were talking about like the spectrum of kind of the courses that are at your own pace, you just come and take them. The ones in the middle that have a cohort with curriculum and then the ones that are more of a coaching almost one-on-one. -on -one. That was really interesting because if you think about it, it's like, oh, we used to all have to sit in these little classrooms with 30 people in them and it had to go at one pace and it was what a terrible way to learn. And then we found out that all this freedom of doing it at your own pace what happens? No one finishes. And I actually remember another podcast here where a couple of hosts would talk about some new course they're excited about. It was just opening up and they'd sign up and they go, yeah, how many weeks do you think you'll make it? It was almost a, a joke <laughs> among them. But in terms of like from your side of the fence, wouldn't that kind of be the goal is to get to where you do have products that people can buy without you having to be there? Because it seems like on this slope of these three different courses, 
as you go towards more personal touch, of course, it takes a lot more of your time for each student. So how does that trade-off work? I mean, I certainly would prefer that when people buy the freelancing school courses, they could self-direct, get through all of it and be happy with it. And that happens for some number of, you know, some percentage of the students, probably 20 to 30% of them, they'll just push all the way through. I do think there are a lot of nudges you can give in an automated way through very personalized feeling email check-ins, which frankly, I just haven't really built in yet. But here's, here's the wave that I think is coming that I think will be really powerful and that we'll see all over the place. And I think the leader and the person who started this was really Seth Godin, even though he hasn't really leaned into talking about this aspect of it much. When he did Alt-MBA, that was not really curriculum-based. It was all about the experience. And it was the experience of people being there live, doing it with you. High completion rates, raving reviews, and it's all about the people. The content didn't really matter. And so for any content creator, I think the wave that we'll start to see is somebody's going to, and it might be a service-based business in the beginning, but someone's going to find a way for creators to basically bolt on a cohort-based program for any launch or any period of time so that if I buy freelancing school course bundle, at the same time, I'm going to be automatically matched with five other students who are taking that at the same time, be given the tools to have a digital meeting room to meet with them live to discuss these courses. They're going to have a community forum to discuss with themselves and with the instructor. That's the way to kind of scale this and have a great experience. But no one's really mastered or created a tech stack to really enable that. Like you're piling together with things like, okay, I'm going to have this specific launch period cohort. I'm going to have a specific Slack instance that I send to those course students only. We're also going to have a discourse forum that I'll invite you into. You got to have all these three different accounts so you can manage all of this. And then I'm going to try to be the glue between all those systems with email. It's just horrible. It's a horrible tech stack that you have to cobble together to make that experience. But it's the experience that would give all students a better time. Like they're going to finish the coursework. They're going to get more out of it. They're going to talk about it. They're going to refer more people to it. And it's ultimately going to reward the creator more and more. So literally, that's why, like I said, today, I launched this new community forum, which is built on a new software itself that I've been looking for a solution for a long time, because I think Slack is a horrible community tool, but probably the best that I can find for what I want to use. Facebook groups also hate it. You have Discord, you have Discourse. They're all like different flavors of the same solution, but none of them were like really built for community except for Facebook groups. And finally, I found a software that's brand new, ex-teachable guys who built this thing. And I'm so bullish on it because if you can build, it's not even about building community. When people follow creators, it's because they like the way you think, they like your work. They are naturally going to also be attracted to other people who feel the same way. And you have all these creators with huge audiences and they have this one-to-one relationship with many people and no interconnectivity between those nodes, between those audience members. And to have a scalable community platform, whether it's available for free or whether it's part of the products that you offer, will create so much value because when you can be the bridge between two people and they can say, yeah, we met because of Jay's freelancing school program and we've been friends ever since. When you can play that role in somebody's relationship to other people, it's so powerful and it creates such a relationship to the people in your audience. You know, I think that's really huge. It's like I've tried a couple online courses because MIT and Stanford have opened up a lot of their engineering stuff. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm kind of interested in this topic and did some, got some way through them and then quit. But the one that stuck was one that did have this cohort approach. It was oddly a course I was taking just for fun. I was interested in the whole 
like basically retirement fund issues that's going on throughout the U.S. of basically pensions not being fully funded. So there's a Stanford professor, he and a professor are two at the forefront of mathematically analyzing pension funds and whether they're really fully funded or not. Hmm. So it's a bunch of financial math and stuff, not in my field at all. Literally, it was just a topic that I found interesting. And when you got in there, they told you right away, you need to get together in groups of five. That's your cohort. Here is your midterm project, and here's your final project. And you have to do that to receive credit and have to complete the class. So all of that was, as you're saying, left to us in this particular case. This one, they didn't even suggest like discourse or any of these other tools. This was probably maybe five years ago or so. And that course stuck because you knew you had one fifth of the work to do for both of these projects. And one fifth was very bearable, but you had deadlines that you kind of kept each other moving forward on. And ironically, that's the course that I found easiest to complete, even though it was probably of the least value to my career and least direct interest. It just made it a lot more fun. And that's, you know, I I mentioned Alt MBA. When they gave you groups of your peers to meet with, they gave you a Zoom room, but they didn't have a facilitator. They dropped you in. You had a written prompt that everyone had access to. Somebody was going to take charge and start leading that group on the fly. And then they made you switch groups like four times through the month that you took the program. So there is something to be said about people can and will self-govern. I'm sure there's some threshold of, you know, constraint to give people so they can operate within it. And maybe it's just so far as saying, here's your final project and here are the deadlines and here's your group. Here's your group. That's probably enough for most audiences to figure out a solution for self-governing. Um, I'm sure it's also dependent on the type of audience that you're serving. Some people are going to be much more equipped to take those constraints and run with them than, than others. But I, I do think that we probably don't give people enough credit for being able to do that and certainly don't give them enough opportunity to try. Now, there's one thing I want to kind of turn back to now. When I was reading your blog post in here, one of your things that you talked about was that getting started in freelancing, it's probably easier than you think. We haven't really touched on that about somebody who's not in freelancing and maybe even talk more directly about what you can do for them and what are the barriers you've helped them break through. Because for some people, it might be a complete mystery as to how to make a move like that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll even simplify this further, further than that article does. The first place that I would start, the biggest mistake a lot of people make is they identify with a skill set. They'll say, I'm a developer. Or they'll say, I'm a copywriter. And when you're coming from that standpoint, you're trying to get clients, you're, you're forcing the client to connect a lot of dots. They have to understand, okay, how does that help me? what part of my business is that helping? Like what type of, like what does a development project look like? Instead, you really need to be very solutions focused for the person that you want to serve. So if you're a developer, that can mean a lot of things. It can mean a lot of different languages. It can mean, um, you know, do you do mobile? Do you do web? What type of client do you do that for? And the answer is probably, I can do all kinds of things. So it comes down to who you're talking to in the moment. You know, and so the best way to freelance, in my opinion, and to get new clients is to really focus on direct conversations with these people who might be clients and spend as much time as possible learning about them and what moves the needle in their business or for whatever it is that they spend their time doing. Just ask a ton of questions. And then when they inevitably will say, oh, I've been talking for 30 minutes. Tell me more about you. What do you do? You've been equipped with all the information that you need for how to talk about what you do in terms of what they actually care about. 
So, you know, if you are talking to a shop owner who has a brick and mortar shop and you're a developer and that person talks about how important it is for them to sell more gift cards or to, you know, sell more direct to consumer, you can say, oh, so it sounds like you must have, you know, a website that sells directly to customers. What, what is that built on? Let's say, oh, it's, it's kind of old. It's on WordPress, I think. I don't know. Someone else built it. You can say, well, you know, you can actually have a much easier time and probably increase the percentage of people who buy from you if you have a better e-commerce engine, something like Shopify. And so what I do is I work with other shop owners like you and I help them move their shop online onto Shopify and skin that so it looks like their brand and makes a really seamless experience and goes directly to the customer. When you can speak in terms of like what that person actually cares about, it's a lot easier for them to connect the dots of what does this person do in relation to how it can help me and get them interested in helping and hiring you to help them. So number one, if you want to start freelancing, yes, take stock of your skills, but think in terms of what types of solutions can I provide using the skills to what type of person? And from there, you know, if you say, I want to work with shop owners to help them develop and launch Shopify websites, that becomes kind of a phrase that you can socialize with people close to you so that, again, you can talk to them and first start with what's going on in their life and see if you can help them directly. But at some point, they'll say, so what are you up to? And you can say, well, you know, I'm starting to freelance a little bit on the side. I really focus on working with shop owners to help them launch e-commerce stores. And in that sentence, one, it's really short, so it's memorable. But two, it uses some specific language that will also start to nestle in their brain because if they go about their day-to-day life and they meet a shop owner, they're going to think of you. If they go about their day-to-day life and someone's talking about e-commerce stores, they're going to think of you. And to generate any word-of-mouth referrals, which most client-based businesses thrive on, the words need to come out of somebody's mouth, right? And that's only going to happen if they know how to refer you, what you're working on, and also if you're first to mind. Because the other problem that a lot of people make when they identify with, I'm a copywriter or I'm a developer, as someone who's connected to a lot of people myself, I know 10 copywriters. I know 20 developers. So if I'm going to refer somebody, I need to know more about the person I'm referring to so that I can give them the best possible recommendation. And I'm only going to recommend one person. And so you need to be first of mind. And the only way for you to be first of mi- first to mind in any circumstance is to be pretty specific in telling me what I need to know about your business so I can make the best connections possible. I got so hung up on that for a long time. I the It struck me early on freelancing that really what nobody cares what you do. It doesn't matter if you're talking to, like my wife has no idea. Every every job I've ever had, she's like, what do you do? And I'm like, I, yeah, I do this. And she's like, I have no idea what that means. So when I started freelancing, it struck me like everybody says, you know, niche down and come up with these, this positioning statement or this other thing. And, and so I would just feel like, hey, does this make sense to you? And I would tell her, this is, this is what I do and who I do it for. And she's like, no. And I'm like, okay, back to the drawing board. This happened for months. And anytime <laughs> I'm considering a change to the language that I use, I always am like, hey, does this make sense to you? The first five times is always no. But by the time it does click, then I do, I feel like I get responses and I will update things, right? And I have gotten more responses over time just using that one simple test. So if you are grabbing a beer with a buddy or hanging out with your significant other or whatever, if, if you're like, okay, can people understand what I do? That's the best test. Just ask somebody because 
chances are you can't count on industry jargon. You can't count on, you know, the language, you know, if you can incorporate that, you can build some trust sometimes. However, the most simplistic statement about how you can help somebody, not necessarily about, like you said, what you do, but how you can help somebody. When you come up with a simplistic statement that really reaches out to people and grabs them about that, that's when I feel like you really start getting a lot more traction. Totally agree. Because a lot of times referrals are the result of somebody trying to solve a problem for somebody else by throwing a person at it. And so we're all out in the world all the time talking to people. And because we're self-centered, self-serving people, inevitably we'll talk about our problems in conversation. And the person who is listening is going to think to themselves, gosh, how can I help Jay out of this pain of this problem he's feeling? And if I say, gosh, my website's trash and I just need somebody to fix it for me, they're going to go into their recall bank and think, who do I know that fixes websites? And it may be as simple as that language. And they've got to know that, you know, building a Shopify site means fixing a website. (laughs) You know, to your point about industry jargon, they do need to know well enough what it is, like how you practically solve something for somebody. And if they're not in the industry, you might really have to simplify it for them. But, you know, whatever language you use, it's not it's not a jail sentence by any means. It's something that you can always update and you can tailor it to whoever's listening. Petra, you brought up a little bit ago that when you go to these networking groups, people would refer to you their ideal clients because that's who they were working with. You can apply similar logic, but try to apply your your filtering on the front end. So if I'm trying to find a certain type of person, I try to ask myself, one, where do they hang out? And then two, who has a lot of authority in that space? If you, if you know that you want to work with, I'm going to use the e-commerce example again. If you want to work with e-commerce shop owners. That's a good example, actually, because that's who I do like working with. Amazing. There and you are, don't tend to meet them in local networking groups, especially not where I live. But there are probably digital networking groups. And there's probably somebody who is really taking on the brunt of organizing that. And so this may take some time, but if you can become friends with that person, that is one heck of an advocate to have because they understand the language, they can deeply understand what you do, and they're talking to your target customer all the time. So by just like building a network of advocates that are filtered on the front end, you can start to solve part of that problem. The thing about clients is whatever client you do get, they're going to refer other people like them because they swim in similar circles too. So it's really a a problem on the front end when you start freelancing of, if I want to do this type of work, I need to start doing this type of work for this type of client as quickly as possible, because it's going to breed more of that. And it's going to start to fill your portfolio. And if you you know want to show relevant work samples, you need the work samples to be relevant. <laughs> and so it's kind of a front end. Clients problem. are like good gremlins in a way. <laughs> well, some of them can be bad gremlins, but they're like good gremlins. <laughs> It's like you pour water on them and they just breed more of themselves. Right. And they're all like similar to the the stock that you started with. <laughs> so yeah, I have definitely found out I like working with e-commerce owners. And I, I like working with female e-commerce owners too. And it's interesting because when I first started, I was getting referrals. I was just getting referrals to all sorts of different businesses. And like you were saying, Jay, that when you started with freelancing, you were literally changing your service to suit the client. Well, I already had in mind exactly what I was going to do. And I didn't want to change my service. I I wanted to be very firm on this is my service and this is what I'm going to be known for. 
that that turned out to be a good thing in the long run because totally. people knew that I was like the best at that. But I was kind of getting all these just random different types of businesses. And on the one hand, it helped in that I was able to understand who I like to work with. But I must say there weren't too many female e-commerce owners in that mix. Then once I started working with that type of client base that I like working with, then one of them would refer another one and because they're also hanging out with other female e-commerce owners. Right. And now all of a sudden there's all these female e-commerce owners. So it's an interesting thing where you need to stick at it a bit and you need to, once you've found that client base that you really like, then it comes down to also looking after them as well, making sure that they really see you as being the best because they will talk to people about you if your service is exceptional. And it's not necessarily that you're delivering what you promised to do in a great way. It's doing the extra things that they wouldn't have even thought of. So things like sending them chocolates or um, letting them know that you're thinking of them if they've just had a child or it's their birthday or something that they just wouldn't have even expected. That's where you become exceptional. And so if you're looking after the people that you really want to have as your clients, then you can, they're just going to breed. <laughs> you're going to get more of the same. I love that. I mean, in the e-commerce world, people will talk about retention versus churn all the time. But I don't hear that in client services very often. You know, attracting the right client and getting the project is only one thing. But if they aren't interested in doing future projects, if they aren't interested in referring people because they had such a great experience, in a lot of ways, that was a wasted effort. You don't want to have an ideal client come about and then nothing ever happen with them again. You, If you feel that you gel with a particular group, I think you owe it to yourself to do whatever you can to get more of that type of person on because, board as your client. Because they're going to still be you know, swimming in that same pond with your other ideal clients. And if they're not spreading good news about you, they might be spreading bad news, You know, which is worse. Hopefully and, not. Uh, you know, time and time again, I'm reminded that the easiest client work to find on a short period of time is from clients you've already worked with. You know, like one of the greatest assets you can have is a base of clients that you've done work with before. They've had a great experience. They know, like, and trust you. And you can just go back to them and say, hey, I've got, you know, a little bit of capacity here in August. We'd love to catch up with you and hear what's going on for, for you over the next couple of months and, and see if there's anything we can collaborate on. Because you don't have to do as much relationship building. They know what to expect. They know how to work with you. The onboarding simple. You can be fairly direct in some relationships just to say, I've got time. I see that you have this problem. Let's slot it in next month. And just boom, there you go. But that only works if you had a good experience at the start. Also, suppliers to the clients that you have a good working relationship with. So for example, if I'm doing analytics and Google Ads, then having really good relationships with people that do Facebook and SEO means that we've worked together. So when someone comes up to them and says, well, do you know anyone that does Google ads? Then they're going to say, well, I've done 10 projects with Petra. She's the best at that. So that's when that starts to happen as well, especially if you have similar client bases. But hey, I'm thinking we should move on to picks. Is everyone else in agreement on that? Yeah, unless uh, Jay has any final thoughts he'd like to add or any things we haven't covered. No, I don't think so. You know, if this jives with Everyone who's listening here, I'm sure you can find me online anywhere by just searching for my name, Jay Klaus. Would love for you to join the freelancing school community at community.freelancing.school. But I'm ready to move on to picks. Fantastic. Great. I was going to ask, actually. Yeah, I was going to ask what was the best way for people to contact you. So what you've just said there, is that you're the best way for people to contact you or should people contact you through other means? Yeah, I'm, I'm on 
Twitter and Instagram at jklaus. Website is jklaus.com. But would love for you to check out um, the freelancing school community. And there's direct messaging there too. So it's actually really difficult to avoid me, really easy to find me. So wherever is easiest for you. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. All right, well, let's move on to picks. So do you have any picks this week, Joel? Yes, I do. So this is interesting. It's kind of like the, the whole programming world has gone through these different evolutions. Back at the start, code was ridiculously hard to write. And getting the bugs out of it was a whole gigantic effort. And so there was a lot of stuff developed. I think Microsoft came up with a book called Code Complete sometime in the late 80s. And now it's gotten to the point where the amount of money and the size and scale of projects has gone down to smaller and smaller levels, even fairly small companies or maybe, you know, so entrepreneurs might ask for a small app to be written or a phone app. And there's a lot of debate, active debate now on whether or not code quality really even matters anymore for some of these projects. And for the really small ones, they might just want it done quickly. They might be hoping they never have to update it. On the other hand, people will still make the point of, well, you've got it. I mean, you, would, you wouldn't buy a car that was made with sticks and twigs. You know, that's not going to really work. So there's a new uh, podcast that uh, Charles Maxwood has started, devchat.tv, called Clean Coders. And so if you are interested in this debate, I would recommend that for anyone who is curious just about what people think of the state of the art as to how much time should you spend getting the code, not just working, but making sure it's also clean code. I'm a huge, huge fan of Uncle Bob's work as well. Well, I will also share a link to Uncle Bob Martin's clean code book. I'll I'll find it in a moment. Um, Brad, how about yourself? Do you have a pick? Yes, I do. So with the uh, weather being awesome and uh, actually it's it's been kind of hot where I'm at uh, the past few days, but I was able to get out and go hiking with the kids and we found a hiking trail that was actually pretty cool with all the hot weather and everything. It had lots of caves and gorges and all kinds of stuff to walk through. And so I am going to pick how I found it, the hikingproject.com. Uh, they also have an app, which is awesome. And I'm pretty sure it's like an REI thing. So full disclosure, I think they are the ones that like sponsored it or something. I I can't remember. I can't keep track of all the, I tried a couple of them, but we have the hikingproject.com. It it will help you find trails wherever you're at. So it's, it's really cool to put in parameters. I I have kids. So finding a trail that's like somewhat paved or graveled uh, makes it a lot easier. Uh, You can search for different trails for your different needs and find something close by. It's pretty awesome. The other thing is that I got, I got a guitar for Father's Day. So I was pretty stoked about that. And I wanted to hang it up in my office. So I found stringswing.com and stringswing is a way to hang up your instruments on your wall so that they look really sweet. Uh, So I was super stoked and they're only like 12 bucks or something like that. Uh, you can find them on Amazon, but I'm going to put the the link to the website here in the in the chat. And that's all I have. How about yourself, Jay? Do you have any picks this week? Uh, one pick I'll share with you. 
I am really hooked right now on a YouTuber who does a bunch of live streams creating music on the fly, totally improvised. His name is Mark Rebillet. That's R-E-B-I-L-L-E-T. His stuff on YouTube is so entertaining, so much fun. He actually hasn't posted for a few weeks because he was just doing a live tour at drive-in movie theaters for people to come and socially distance enjoyed his weird streams. But yeah, Mark Rebier on YouTube is what I've been picking up lately. That sounds good. I'm going to have to check him out. All right, well, my pick this week is I have been binge-watching a series on Netflix called Anne with an E. And it's based on the books and of Green Gables, which I read when I was a kid and I absolutely loved. And I tell you what, this series absolutely did its service. I loved it so much. So if anyone ever was a fan of that book, it was just such a fantastic series. So I'm going to link to the Netflix homepage for it. It was fantastic. I loved it. That's great. I remember being a kid and my sister just uh, being enthralled with Green Gables. Yeah, do you know what? I hadn't read the book since I was 12. But then I saw that it was on Netflix. I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. And I tell you what, it was such a good series. I loved it. <laughs> and now like, I, I didn't even um, have a Netflix account before. Like I've, I've only had it for about a month or two months or so. Um, um, but now whenever I hear the Netflix sound, I'm like, Anne of Green Cables. And I'm like, oh, no, I've, already, I've already finished it. <laughs> I just loved it so much. So I'm sharing that one. Anyone that liked the books will love the series, I'm sure. All righty. Well, I think that we're we're done. So thank you so much, Jay. We've we've already found out how to reach you. So that's great. And thanks everyone for another great show. Thanks, guys. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.